1: Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm
2: Heidi White.
1: And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Closer, the podcast for the incurable reader on which we are discussing Cormac McCarthy's All the Pretty Horses. And boy, does this novel get rough.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We're going to talk it's about part three. so good. It's I know, right? It's so good. I know, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's great. But it is part three that we're going to talk about today. This is the longest section of reading that we're going to have in the whole book. So that will, you know, there's a lot to talk about in this section and we'll do a little summary here in a minute. But first, we need to check in with, with, with the people. Heidi, how are you? Tim, how are you?
2: I'm doing great. Tim, yeah. though.
1: Yeah. Tim, Tim,
2: Tim suffers. Tim has been no, to the valley Heidi, of the I, shadow of death. I, yeah.
0: The last seven days were bad enough that I went to the doctor's office for this the is second like time. Actually
2: like, actually, a normal thing to do. But to you, for it se- seems for me. really why not. why
1: did you put doctor's office, doctor's <laughs> office in
0: like professor air quotes? All
2: caps, <laughs> yes.
0: Because I think that's the second time I've been to a doctor's office in 10 years. Okay. The okay, last hold on. time that I went.
1: <laughs> Aren't you? I don't mean to be that guy. I don't mean to go into like little brother mode right here, slash dad right? mode, which is kind of a weird right? combo there.
2: It smells right. Aren't though. you?
1: Aren't you a certain age, a grown up? Yeah, mm-hmm. where there's just mm-hmm. things you're supposed to be having checked out. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Do we want you to did... talk about those things? Well, no, not really. <laughs> I'm just, I'm, am worried about you. I, I want to make sure that you're taking care of yourself. I think you should be worried about me.
0: Okay. Part of no, I'm not going to go into like my whole like.
1: No, I get it. You don't trust background. doctors or modern medicine.
0: It's fine. <laughs> Okay, Have the you tried last essential oils? I'm just going to do, I, I'm, I'm taking a holistic leaches? approach. Yeah. And I got some leeches right. and now some you feel great. peppermint oil that I'm going to, yeah. And now I feel great. No, yeah. I had a sinus infection. Okay. Mm-hmm. Let's back up. The last time I went to Say the doctor's no more, office. Man. This is my, my malady of choice. <laughs> same. same. thing. What, what is your malady of choice? A, a sinus, sinus infection? infection?
1: I get like one or two
0: bad ones a year. Yeah. They're terrible. Mm-hmm. They're so miserable. It's, it was so bad. This is how bad it was that by comparison, the thing that drove me to the doctor's office last time that I went to a doctor's office, it was because I was coughing up blood. I had like the whooping cough. I'm not exaggerating. I think I might've had whooping cough because I coughed so much that I wore a hole in my esophagus. Why are you guys laughing? Why Heidi, are you burying your face in your hand? And now David is doing the same thing. You're enabling him.
2: Uh, So I don't know why I'm usually not the kind of person who laughs at my friend's misfortunes. I generally am known as a fairly sympathetic person. It's the way you're Mm -hmm. telling the story. It is the way it's the delivery and I mean, maybe you had whooping cough. I don't know. Like that's pertussis. That's you might I'm have make, had I'm that. Making a
0: little note in my book. The next time that I have Barry, Barry, don't tell Heidi and David.
2: We might have time you come you down like, a 10 years <laughs> though, Tim. I'm really sorry that you have had such a difficult time. How's that?
0: Me too. And, and Heidi, you and I recorded with Andrew, um, the third and yeah, we'll, fourth do little, acts we'll do a little Hamlet. promo for, yeah, we'll for do the a little plays side. Thing. Yeah. When you listen, and you'll I know been, that Tim
1: was on the death door. Oh, you'll hear he, it. I, I was. just,
0: oh. And I was so, I still I am. feel so, so bad excited, for like, you. Hamlet. It's like Hamlet. Oh my gosh.
2: I, I, I wanted to be on fire for Hamlet. And I, I was like,
0: what's, what's Hamlet's girlfriend's name?
2: <laughs> you did a little bit like that. It was, that's true. It was bad. However,
0: It seems right though. It
2: is. I'm going to drop the, I'm going to drop the literary term. It was a bit of an objective correlative.
0: Just like Hamlet. Something going a little bit was nuts. rotten
2: in the state of Denmark. Yeah,
0: exactly.
1: Well, speaking of no, rotten things and was people like, being
0: sick. Yeah. No, go ahead. Go ahead, Tim. Well, I was just going to say, I had Nickelodeon era slime exiting <laughs> my, my face. Yeah, no more. Right, it's starting right. to clear up. Well, Sorry, did you David. get the thing
1: where, like, under your eyes, it just like hurt. there's like pressure, and it feels like yes. someone's yeah.
2: pounding oh, and yeah. uh, pounding. Yeah, it feels
1: like uh, someone's uh, doing yeah. a little chiseling on your yeah your cheekbones.
2: It feels like you want to drill a hole in your own face to relieve yeah. the pressure. Yeah, yeah. right, yeah.
1: right. That's yeah, brutal. Well, you then
2: we salute yeah. you. Well,
1: we do salute you, and you have over the last week had a bit of. Um, you know, a little bit of, of uh, something in common with John Grady Cole and Rollins, Lacey Rollins. You have, you have endured great trauma uh, just as they had to. And so I'm sure that it was, um, it was perfectly, and it was like the right time to read this book. Right. I'm sure. It's a nice transition. Yeah. It Unless really you're nice one transition. of them and it's
2: like, did you really just compare my prison trauma to a sinus infection?
0: <laughs> I think you did. I think you did.
1: I mean, if John Grady Cole or Lacey Rollins are listening, I just, I want to apologize to you um, for for,
2: They didn't say they were fine multiple times in the section. They did. They did. Oh my gosh. So
1: in this section, Heidi, can you give us a quick summary? You don't need to go into much detail, but give us the basic summary of what happens in part three, because of course we know that some people, I've gotten messages from people saying, I finished all the pretty horses. Can't wait to hear what you guys are talking about, which before you do your summary and why you're thinking about it, I want to say- those of you who weren't sure about this book and finished it ahead of schedule and are loving it and are sending us messages about it and um, pushed through and ended up liking it, Tim and I, we feel validated <laughs> and mm-hmm. we appreciate you sticking with it. And we are so excited that people are um, are, are also liking this book um, the way we do. So, And I mean, Heidi as well, but... You
2: know, right. Well, I mean, we've had an ongoing conversation over a couple of years about whether or not we could do this book on the show. Right. right. And we've vacillated a bit because it is so intense in this section. Um, And I'm, I'm so glad that we, that we're doing it. It's just, you guys, I got, so got a,
0: I got a text from our friend, Haley Croft. Yeah. Yep. Total conversion experience. Yep. Do you think it is, makes me so happy?
1: Do you think we should feel empowered? To read increasingly more
2: disturbing books now. Oh, we're about to get some Bram Stoker. Here we Facebook go. Yep. Well, yep. I'm curious though. Thoughts on this? It's a real question. Yeah, because yeah. there are lots of books thoughts. that have
1: pretty disturbing sections or just difficult sections. Characters endure a lot that we've always kind of thought about doing, but then always said, "Eh, you know." We'll have to skip it, but, but yeah, let us know if that'd be something you'd be okay with. But enough, enough of this intro's talk now. Let's get into the book. Heidi, take us through the John Grady Rollins trauma. What happened to them in part three?
2: I'm ready. In this section, Rollins and JGC are taken from the ranch and they are marched to be interrogated by the captain. Uh, And if you hear the dark foreboding in my voice (laughs) and you've read the section, you know exactly why. Uh, So the captain interrogates them, questions them as to their relationship with Blevins, accuses them of being horse thieves and murderers, and then tortures them pretty severely uh and after that they are taken in a wagon with blevins whose feet are crippled and he's been in prison and been tortured and he's there with them and then they march him off into the woods a 13 14 year old boy and shoot him in cold blood uh, mm. And but not before Blevins has a chance to give uh, JGC some pesos, which come in handy later. Mm. Um, so, And after that, Rollins and John Grady Cole are taken to prison where they endure much violence and suffering and are able to give pretty much as good as they get, especially John Grady Cole. So Rollins is stabbed and taken to the infirmary. John Grady Cole uh, remains in prison prison. Meanwhile, he's taken out periodically uh, by oh, remind me of his name Perez mm-hmm. uh, and who is expecting to be bribed, but JGC has nothing to bribe him with. Uh, so at the end, after they're both defeated, um, John Grady does manage to take down a guy in the lunchroom in a pretty awesomely violent his, his one moment of triumph yeah. uh, and he stabs the guy um, and then he thinks that's the end of him, that he's going to die of his wounds. But he wakes up in the hospital and is given money and dismissed. And he knows that it's because the matriarch, um, Alfonsia yeah, right? Is that her name? Has mm-hmm. rescued him. Um, and he decides he's going to go back. And he's going to try to connect with Alejandra and resolve all of this between them. But Rollins is like, bye-bye now, bye-bye. And he goes back yeah. to the United States.
1: Yeah, we talked a little bit about how this book has it kind of it's each of its parts are almost like a different novel and Mm -hmm. here we get like a you know it's like a cross between cool hand luke and you know one flew over the cuckoo's nest sons of anarchy sons of anarchy and shawshank redemption Mm -hmm. um we were just talking in terms of movies now but (laughs) um actually this is a are there great prison what are some other great prison novels
0: I guess. The Soldier Green Mile. Stephen oh, yeah. King, King has yeah. got that yeah. nailed. Yeah, he does. That guy,
2: he's really good at the prison novel.
0: So A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisevich. Yeah. Yeah. I was that's gonna say. The like, yeah, there's a whole host of his books that are great prison novels.
2: Dostoevsky. Yeah.
0: yeah. That's true.
1: Yeah, like notes on notes from underground and stuff. Um
0: I just wanna say okay, so before you get into it, David, we talked a little bit, I think in episode one about whether or not you know, like how much of a kind of masculine author McCarthy is. And I got to the end of this section, the goodbye between Rollins and John Grady Cole. And I was like, yeah, I think the charge fits that this is a very masculine author. Like these two guys, best friends and cousins have just gone to Mexico together, have come within an inch of life together. And barely survived fighting it out in a prison yard. And Rollins gets on the bus to go home to leave his best friend in Mexico. Doesn't know when he's going to see John Grady Cole again. And here's their goodbye. Well, said Rollins, I reckon I'll see you one of these days. You take care. Yeah, you take care. And that's the end.
1: You you say this like this is a criticism that is, it's like a, it's a legit criticism. This no. Is, this is not, a, the masculine nature of this is not a criticism. This is like this should be a compliment. It's like
0: absolutely like, true to life.
1: There's literally, yeah, exactly. There's nothing else that you could say. I know. I mean, maybe you slap the guy in the back, but there's nothing else you can say, which actually reminds me, this is this is such an intense, like, what are we going to say about this? Session? I know. Like, it's, I mean, there's only, we can't do it justice. So. Yeah.
0: Yeah, why um, dress it go- up? Like, why dress it up we- with a flowery goodbye? Like, there, what more can be just- said? You're exactly right. Should I mean everyone
1: read it? They 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 know how crazy this this section is. We read it. I mean, should we just call the episode a day there and then come back next week and talk about the book when it gets a little more, you know, back back to being a little bit more pleasant? We might want to just call Yeah, let's just call it. For For David Kern,
2: for Timothy McIntosh. Yeah, exactly.
1: For Heidi White. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Till next time, happy reading. Happy Happy reading. reading. (laughs) I don't think they believe us. I mean, it'd be funny if somebody left. We we should have Logan put in some sound effect there. (laughs) Crickets.
2: I mean, in all (laughs) seriousness, David, you're so right about this section. I was reading it and just thinking there's so much to say, there's so, so much to say, or there's nothing mm. to say. It's so beautifully written. It's, uh, it captures so many universal human mysteries and it mm. goes to like the depth of human suffering and this question of justice and what's it all for? Like it's so, like even just saying it that what I just said sounds like cheapening the whole thing because it's so perfect. This is an exact, exact to me. As I was reading it, I kept thinking, this is exactly what Flannery O'Connor meant when she said, if you could write an essay, write the essay, mm-hmm. but there are things that can only be said through a story. Yeah. And I, I think that this section of All the Pretty Horses is maybe one of the most glaring examples of that to me. There's
1: so much pathos in this section. Mm-hmm. Like, I almost want to just be like, let's just read some passages where the mm-hmm. way he tells the story mm-hmm. is so full of drama that it makes it uncomprehendingly compelling, if, you, if I can put it that way. But right as I was speaking, you were also about to speak, Tim.
0: What were you going to say? There's two, there's two aspects of this section of the book that really stick out to me. One is the fight with the cuchillero, which mm-hmm. is, I think, just as an exercise in prose, it might be worth reading it, even though it's, it's difficult. Maybe we shouldn't read the whole thing, you know, in case there are kids in the car. It is so riveting. I mean, this is, I don't know how many times I've read this book. And every time I read it, my pulse quickens. And I, I'm, like, I, I'm like, maybe he's not going to make it this time, you know. The other thing that really struck me about this section was Rollins' relationship to Blevins previous to this part yeah. in the book, um, Rollins can't stand Blevins. And I think there's a lot of insecurity. I read a lot of insecurity in Rollins' approach to Blevins. You know, he's best friends with John Grady Cole. He's got to constantly like, brag about what a great horseman he is. Um, yeah, Rollins yeah. is constantly picking fights with Blevins, doesn't believe his story, thinks he might be a horse thief. And then- we rediscover Rollins in jail. He's been arrested as a horse thief, which he may or may not. Have we been. rediscover
1: Blevins in jail. Blevins,
0: I'm sorry, I said Rollins. Blevins in jail, um, accused of a horse th- of being a horse thief and a murderer. And he was a murderer. He just like cold shot a guy in the street, a guy who had taken his or somehow gotten his pistol. Um, but Rollins does this this about face with regards to Blevins who's previously always mocking him, seeking any opportunity that he could to disgrace Mm -hmm. him in front of John Grady Cole. And then the sheriff takes him out in the desert and he shoots Blevins and we get up and ride on and Rollins is heartbroken. He -hmm. is so torn up about this. And I guess my question for you guys is, is Rollins more upset at the loss of Blevins or is Rollins more upset that he has now experienced a taste of death for the first time? That's a good question. I'll see you guys next week. Um, Yeah.
1: I, I think that Blevins... Well, okay. My answer to this... I think one of the big themes in Cormac McCarthy's work in general, but especially in this book is the question of justice and is justice possible? What does justice look like? How is justice defined in different situations? And it's one of the big questions that the characters are always wrestling with in their, their own life. Like even when they get pulled away from the ranch, both Alejandra's great aunt slash godmother and father are both essentially talking about like whether it's just to take certain actions on behalf of their daughter Mm. um throughout the first part of the book they've been talking a lot about um you know whether it would be like whether blevins was justified in what he did and whether they, and and there's all these questions about whether they should let him come along and whether it'd be just to kick him to the, you know, kick him to the curb. That's this conversation that Blevins, I mean, Rollins and John Grady have. we talked about that in one of the episodes. And then here in this section, I think that theme becomes really concentrated because you have, was it just for them to shoot Blevins? Was is, is it just John Grady's not even sure if it was just for him to defend himself and kill the guy in the, in the lunch hall. Right. Um, they, certainly are arguing that it's not just for them to be held. Mm. Um, and then at the end of the section, we get, we get Rollins debating whether it's just for him to leave his friend and go home and allow John Grady to go back to the ranch. And, and John Grady debating whether it's just for him to go back to the ranch and he, you know, hear what he wants to hear from Alejandra. So all these questions of justice are so core to this novel <clears throat> that I can't help but think that that's got, that's, yeah, playing into Rollins here because he is, this is one of those books. That's a great insight, David. That is asking us to consider the way justice worked in the West. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, even in the West, like in these Western stories, there's the idea of like, you know, the lawman or the Lone Ranger type character, right? Who comes, who, who rides in. And although he's masked and mysterious, he enacts some kind of justice against people who deserve what's coming to them and then you and they're always tied to this some sort of a code. And I think what's happening in this section in particular is the the way that code works is being worked out between these three guys. And like what like it makes it complicates the code in this really intense way. And I think that that's a big part of Rollins and Blevins relationship is and, and I and I can't help but wonder if Blevins is even or Rollins is even feeling guilty about the justice of his own attitude towards Blevins earlier in the book, Yeah, because I think justice justice is tied to the actions we may, we take, which is then, and then the repercussions of those actions is tied to our response to them, either feeling justified or feeling guilty for them. And we've talked so much about how Cormac McCarthy over and over and over again in this book, he's setting people up to to not be sure what decision they are supposed to take. And then when they do, they're being a repercussion. And I think that that's that's playing out in the relationship of these three young men. And in a way, that's why I think this is a coming-of-age novel as, as much as anything else. Because they're taking actions that they're not sure what... In moments when they're not sure what the right decision is, which then have repercussions... And then the repercussions of those are determining whether the actions they took originally were justified. And so the complicated nature of justice is being woven between all these relationships. And then that also goes back to even Alejandra. And it goes all the way back to the beginning when he, when John Greedy's ranch gets sold and he has no recourse but to leave. Like there's just this notion of justice is so central to this book yeah. and to all the relationships within yeah. it. Okay, that was probably like two minutes too long.
0: But to your point, the story that the... Sheriff Jailer tells Rollins and John Grady Cole after they kill Blevins is a story of like real world justice. He tells the story of um, his friends set him up to go visit this prostitute and they each are with the prostitute, each of his friends with the prostitute. And then it's his turn and she refuses him. And so this lawman is a young man apparently like takes it out on this woman because basically he refused to show back up with his friends, not having done what he said he was going to do. You know, it's this brutal, brutal story. And and, then
1: guys go like, and look at me now
0: and look at me now. Right. Right. And so I couldn't let Blevins go because I'm the same guy who kind of wouldn't let the whore go. Is his resolution, and I think that what you're saying, David, I think really, I, I think that's the right answer. Rollins, it, it, it maybe partly it was sympathy with Blevins. Maybe partly it's the first time that he's been in such close proximity with death. But I think you're right. I think that this is tapping something maybe even deeper than both of those things, which is like his sense of justice is now been grossly violated like okay this is the world that yeah. we live in really yeah well
1: i one of the reasons and how do you you can talk in just a second <laughs> you do have permission to jump in anytime. um one of the things i love about cormac mccarthy is the way he can take these very specific experiences of people and the emotional and psychological responses and spiritual responses they have to those experiences and tie them to something like deep and primordial right? Like this is like the law of the land being worked out in individual souls. And like nobody, very few people do that as well as Cormac McCarthy with like as much art, art, as artfully as he does.
2: Right. Well, I think you guys are, you guys are right. Like the question of this whole section of the novel is, um, was it worth it? What we did for Blevins? Right. And Rollins is angry at John Grady Cole at the beginning of the section two for sleeping with Alejandra and putting them at risk. Yeah. And, and he, they have a conflict at the beginning because Rollins is the only one truly innocent in all of it. He did nothing, mm. he was only a companion. He was just along for the ride. Right. And so Blevins was a criminal. And John Grey Cole took an immense risk with what, with his relationship with Alejandra. And all along the way, Rollins was the one saying, let's not do this. We're going to pay consequences for this. This is going to come back and and haunt us. And then he's proven right, like in every way. And he's the one who like bears the brunt of the sins of others. Right. And that is another question of justice when he's confronted then with the death of Blevins and remembering again, how young these guys are 16 years old.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Right. Like they are so young. And when he's confronted with the death of Blevins, he sees for the first time, not a problem, that he's been trying to solve and get out of but a child being dragged off into the woods to die and Mm. and that's like a profoundly transformative moment for everybody right think about that loss of innocence in our own lives when we look back and we realize like i am inextricably tied with the sins of the entire community around me, I'm going to have to bear them as well. There's no independence, right? There is no running, like riding off into the sunset as a cowboy. Like even the cowboy cannot really ride off into the sunset, right? Like it's, this is, I think one of the, the, as David said, if the contemplation is the nature of justice, which I think it always is in Cormac McCarthy, what's worth it? What is it ever? Is it worth it to do the right thing, even if I suffer and other people suffer? And we get to see Blevins as such a coward in this section and like he's not worth dying for. And yet they have to endure this for him. But the question seems to be not is Blevins worth suffering for, but is my soul worth giving up on enough to walk away from the justice that I'm pondering and contemplating?
1: This is why he's not a nihilist.
2: (laughs) I agree completely. I agree. And I think there's a couple of really important points in this section that point to that. One is that moment for Rollins when he is laying on the bed of the truck with his, you know, his forehead on his fists like realizing this is a human person, not just a problem. And then also there's a couple of things. The the money that Blevins gave to John Grady Cole and then was able to use that money to save his life, right? He gets the knife Mm -hmm. out of it. And then I also think that that Rollins has another kind of dawning realization of potential, you know, stars in the dark night when he has when he sees that it is Alejandra's grandmother that's gotten them out of it, right? Because mm. Jay because John Grady Cole has had a relationship with Alejandra, and now they're actually able to get out of this situation. They wouldn't have been able to if it wasn't for that. And so I think like he's seeing kind of the convergent points of sometimes we make decisions we can't explain that feel that that seem to violate a sense of justice or rightness in the universe. And those things end up being salvific. And and that makes things really complicated in adults for this person and for us. Like we Mm -hmm. are, I think out of everybody, we're the most like Rollins, right? Like he's in a sense, the vessel for the reader that's like, oh, stop, don't do that. Oh, wait, hold on. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's going to work out, you know, like, so it's all.
0: He's the most, he's so commonsensical. He's such Mm -hmm. a commonsensical character. Like every time he talks, I'm like, yeah, Rollins is right. Like, don't get involved with her. Rollins is right. You got to leave Blevins alone. Blevins is just like dynamite in an oversized
2: hat. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: But the thing that makes the book go is John Grady Cole's... Moral center. It's his moral center. But I was going to say also it's his drive toward, I think something that is otherworldly or toward maybe he he is on a quest for something that is beyond common sense. I think part of it is his relationship with, that's what he's seeking in his relationship with Alejandra. I think it's also his relationship with horses is metaphysical. Yeah. He's looking for a mythical beast. Mm -hmm. He really is, you know, and the, the kind of duality. There's something in the medieval relationship. about his mission. Very much so. Um, Rollins, is, Rollins is just the perfect foil for John Grady Cole, because in so many ways, they see the world the same way. In so many ways, John Grady Cole is the idealist to the caterpunctual Rollins, who is <laughs> the voice of common sense. But isn't it, I'm so glad that you,
1: you brought this Rollins... Blevins' relationship up, because in the moment when Blevins dies, as with many other moments in the in the book so far, we see it through through Rollins' eyes, and so like on one seventy seven, the captain put one arm around the boy, or he put his hand in the small of his back like some kindly advisor. The other man walked behind him, car- them carrying the rifle, and Blevins disappeared into the ebony trees, hobbling on one boot, much as they had seen him that morning coming up the arroyo after the rain in that unknown country long ago. Rollins looked at John Grady. His mouth was tight john grady watched the small ragged figure vanish limping among the trees with his keepers there seemed insufficient substance to him to be the object of men's wrath there seemed nothing about him sufficient to fuel any enterprise at all don't you say nothing said rollins mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so like the voice the voice of justice the voice of like searching and trying to understand the moment and like comprehend what's going on and why it's happening and the one who's saying they can't do this they can't do this as you said the one who is in our place in this key moment in the book is Rollins. Yeah. And of course that means that the rest of the novel is going to be assuming we spend more time with John Grady because they've split up. The rest of the novel is going to take on a different complexion. Yeah. Because Rollins is no longer our sort of it's, the books now going to ask us to carry on like
0: Rollins without Rollins. And what that means is, I mean, think about what Rollins said at the end of that section that you just read. Mm-hmm. Don't you say nothing John Grady Cole. All right. Don't you say a damn word. John Grady turned and looked at him. He looked at the guards and looked at the place where they were, the strange land, the strange sky. All right. He said, I won't. What Rollins is asking him to do is to kind of like bridle that moral sense that he has against the injustice of it, you know? And so for the rest of the book, to your point, David, we're now gonna see what John Grady Cole is like if he gets to pursue that that cord in him that is that that is so full of longing, that speaks out against injustice, that's seeking something other otherworldly. We're now gonna see him full throttle pursuing that, you know, hmm. and whether or not he can survive it without rollins is to be seen this has
1: been a road book with a sidekick who helps us understand the main character mm. and now our sidekick is gone yeah. you know there's no robin anymore there's no little john i mean uh, carry on with comparisons to other sidekicks <laughs> um heidi did you want to say something did you something you were on the tip of your tongue
2: i just think that this whole they the way that he ends it though um the, 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 the guards part moved three? Yeah, no, that's the, the section with with oh, okay. mm. Lovin's death. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he says, the guards moved. One of them stood on the real axle hub and reached across the boards of the truck bed for the chain. The driver came from the ruins of the Quinta. We're okay, whispered Rollins. We're okay. That moment is so moving to me. Mm-hmm. When he is... He's trying, like you said, David, he's trying to make sense of it. He's trying to comprehend something that just cannot be, you know, and I... This whole section puts us in the position of doing that over Mm. and over again, just like Mm -hmm. Rollins. Like this cannot be, it cannot be that they are suffering like this for sins they didn't commit. Mm. But then, then what's so interesting to me is that McCarthy, because he's a master, right? Throws in that conversation that Rollins and John Grady Cole have at the end of the section when Rollins says, do you ever think about all the bad things you've done? And do you ever wonder that maybe we're paying for those things? Right. Maybe we do deserve to be here, essentially Mm. is what he's saying. We didn't do the thing we're accused of, but maybe justice is a closed system. Maybe this is paying for the sins of our past that always come back and haunt us. And so I think that with this question of justice is that. To the point that this isn't nihilism, but it also isn't a happy camper, everything's going to get put into a box somewhere. Like he is constantly, our author, Cormac MacArthur, is constantly constantly complicating the question, right? Not Hmm. just with violence and not just with kind of this dance between goodness and good and evil, but also with just, he's complicating it with questions like that with like maybe we're not really good people maybe we're not good men maybe we're paying for something yeah, we done they're trying to figure
1: out who they are yeah
2: yep that's right and it's not as simple as this black and white good and bad and Cormac McCarthy's constantly bringing in these complicating factors within the stories that forces us as the as the readers to reckon with this is a dark and a complicated world and yet there are good people in it Mm -hmm. oh wait are there question mark right like
1: yeah yeah (laughs) well and he and like immediately after this scene he draws this really interesting comparison like in terms of setting because um do you know how they throw the boot Blevins' boot was still lying in the grass. One of the guards bent and picked it up and pitched it into the weeds. It's this really heartbreaking kind of symbol. And then it's got these two paragraphs, which I was really struck by. When they wound back up out of the glade, it was already evening, and the sun lay long in the grass and across the shallow swales where the land dipped in pockets of darkness. Small birds come to feed in the evening cool of the open country flushed and flared away over the grass tops, and the hawks in silhouette against the sunset waited in the upper limbs of a dead tree for them to pass. They rode into Saltillo at 10 o'clock at night, the populace out for the paseos, the cafe's full. They parked on the square opposite the cathedral, and the captain got out and crossed the street. There were old men sitting on benches under the yellow lamplight, having their shoes polished, and there were little signs warning people off the tended gardens. Vendors were selling paletas of frozen fruit juices, and young girls with powdered faces went hand in hand by pairs and peered across their shoulders with dark, uncertain eyes. John Grady and Rollins sat with their blankets pulled about them. I love what McCarthy's doing here because like we get this rugged landscape scene with the birds and the hawks, you know, in the upper limbs of the dead tree waiting for them to pass and small birds coming to feed in the evening and they're, you know, f- sitting in the, the you know, they're sitting in the grass and you know, you got this rugged comparison and then you've got <laughs> this all of a sudden we're next to a cathedral in a city and the old men like those birds are sitting and watching them and the young girls are waiting for them to pass. And so he's like, compare He's taking this. They're going out of the rugged wilderness into the city. And you think for a second, Oh, this is kind of, kind of like an Id- idyllic Mexican town, right? Sounds great. There's a cathedral and there's, you know, the, the old men and the girls and the, and the fruit juices and, it feels like for just a moment, you're going to get relief, but then it gets to, at that, that moment it gets darker. I, and the way he sets that up is like, it's so simple. And yet also so good because <laughs> he's just giving us the scenery. Right. But there's, there's so much more than that in, in those lines. And it's just, he's so good at that kind of thing. I really um, love that's, those are the paragraphs that I like to nerd. Like to me, just like make me so excited about Cormac McCarthy.
0: What's Sorry, the one where he, me, um, when he is recovering after the knife fight and he walks to the, is it, he walks to the door and his footprints are kind of, he, he can see his vaporous footprints on the concrete behind him and they slowly kind of disappear from the outside in. It's it's this brilliant kind of cutaway between action. You just see he's really great at interpolating these like keenly observant moments in between moments of real action and moments of dialogue, that re, that pace this novel to perfection. Mm, yeah. Um, I wish. Go ahead, David.
1: Well, I was going to say which scene? Which scene was that again? Or was it was the after the the knife. I fight? think
0: it's after the knife fight when he's recovering in the I don't know Clinica. Is it where he,
1: it says he practiced walking up and down? I think so. He polished the underside of the mess tray with the sleeve of his shift. And then it talks about as if he, um, he studied the face that peered dimly out of the warped steel, like some maimed, raging gin in conjured there. He peeled away the bandage from his face and inspected the stitches there and felt them with his fingers, like sees himself as a, as a a gargoyle. uh, Right. Exactly. Like a maimed and raging gin in conjured. There is an absolutely incredible phrase. So great.
0: Yeah, it's yeah. so great.
1: Everyone who's listening is just like all right, guys.
0: Yeah, listen to the fanboys go. <laughs> what was the episode what was the episode four about? It was about some it was like some fanboys and a girl that had some common sense. And it was yeah. kind of like <laughs> <laughs> she, she, she's the Rollins then, but I don't know I which,
1: say, say, which of us is Which of us is Blevins. Or, yeah, I
0: don't even know. I yeah. don't know if that's accurate. Um I was also trying to find, before we end like the fanboy portion of the program, I was trying to find the section where he's recovering and he starts to think of Alejandra, but he puts it off because he knows that the recovery is going to be really hard and he might have to save her until it's harder. Do you remember that that little, it's just one sentence and it was just, I was like, I know exactly what he's talking about. I've been there before. I've been there before. I remember-
2: He starts to think about his father- Yep. Go ahead. Yes. I was going to read it. No, no, no.
0: There have been moments that um, I've gone through something really hard, like with my dad dying and I would kind Mm -hmm. of run away in my mind to a little oasis place. And I'd be like, you know, I can't nurture that oasis place too much. There's just a long way to go with dad. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm going to save the oasis for a little bit later when it's really, when I really know I got to have it. Does that make
2: sense? Mm -hmm. Do you guys do that? yeah of course and there's um he says he's like are we human beings yeah (laughs) yeah no i think that that's really insightful what you just said that it's our mind is this what is it that um saint macarius says like it's populated by angels and demons and monsters and mythical beings and um and it's mm. like a landscape or a geography inside mm. of our mind, right? And so we go places there. Mm. Um And and there's some places that are hard and some that are really comforting and a consolation. And yet we know that they're an oasis, as you said, you can't live there. You know, you can't dwell in yeah. that particular spot or it becomes what? I don't know, idolatrous or overused or whatever it is. But there is this sense of It loses its
0: power way. if you... Yeah, if you use right. it too much, it it loses its power. It loses its vitality. So right. you have to use it in, in reservation.
2: That whole section, I'm going to read it because I think it's just yeah. so beautiful. What page that is whole it? Paragraph. It's on page 204 at the bottom. Um, is this is probably like, for
1: the best because we need to increase your 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 uh, usage ratio to for uh, to use a basketball terminology on this episode False. yeah
2: i'm having the best time i love this um okay bottom of 204 he lay there three days of course because three days that is of course a, of course a couldn't be two a, couldn't be four Messianic reference right has to be three he lay there three days he slept and woke and slept again someone turned off the light and he woke in the dark he called out but no one answered that is quite a talk about pathos. That sentence. He cried out, but nobody, and just buried there in the middle of this lovely paragraph. Um,
1: but then thought, what's
2: the next line? I know. He thought of his father and go shoot yeah
1: he calls dumb and answers and he thinks of he his, thinks his father, of his and father. His father it's
2: perfect answer. it's just like i said uh, that's why we're all talking so much today because there's so you either talk too much or not at all there's either nothing yeah, to say because but- it's so perfect or else you just want to go on and on um so look i can wax eloquently about cormac mccarthy too yep. All right. He thought of his father in Goshi. He knew that terrible things had been done to him there, and he had always believed that he did not want to know about it, but he did want to know. He lay in the dark thinking of all the things he did not know about his father, and he realized that the father he knew was all the father he would ever know. He would not think about Alejandra because he didn't know what was coming or how bad it would be, and he thought she was something he'd better save. So he thought about Horses. And they were always the right thing to think about. Later, someone turned the light back on and it did not go off again. After that, he slept. And when he woke, he dreamed of the dead standing about in their bones and the dark sockets of their eyes that were indeed without speculation bottomed in the void wherein lay a terrible intelligence common to all, but of which none would speak. When he woke, he knew that men had died in that room. That's just an incredible paragraph. And there's so, so much in there. And I I think that this is one of the reasons why I think we should read books like this is buried in this little paragraph here when he says he lay in the dark thinking of all the things that he did not know about his father. And he realized that the father he knew was all the father he would never know. But right before that, he said he knew that terrible things had been done to him there, but he'd always believed he did not want to know about it, but he did want to know. And I think that mm. that's one of the reasons why we ought to read books like this, because if you have not suffered, you think you don't want to know about it but someday you will like just keep living Mm -hmm. right and then you need to know that you're part of a community that you're part of like a brotherhood and sisterhood of people who have suffered and that you can reach out and find them and think about them and I think that that's one of the biggest reasons why Mm -hmm. we ought to read hard books
0: that's like a that's a great argument Heidi for the merits of drama over melodrama I mean, Mm. if, if the basic distinction is in a melodrama, you know, what's going to happen, you know, you know what's going to happen and you just kind of like, you want to experience some prepackaged emotions like you microwave a TV dinner, but in drama, in this book, in this section, we don't know what's going to happen. We just don't know. Mm. And it's more painful to kind of, go through that experience with John Grady Cole but ultimately it's more invigorating and edifying hmm.
1: I need your help on something because you reading this just made me think that the, the, this might be the second half of a bracket in between, a bunch, in between which a bunch of action happens hmm. so I want to read a passage on 161 And then I want to see if maybe this theory that just popped into my head, like I had one of those moments where my eyes kind of fell out of my head because of something Heidi just read. So on on the bottom of 161, it's something I've marked. It's one of my favorite passages. This book has a lot about dreams, right? Yes. And Tim was talking about horses. So the bottom of this section, it's it's the last full paragraph. That night, he dreamt of horses in a field on a high plain, Where the spring rains had brought up the grass, and the wildflowers out of the ground, and the flowers ran all blue and yellow, far as the eye could see, and in the dream he was among the horses running, and in the dream he himself could run with the horses, and they coursed the young mares and fillies over the plain, where their rich bay and their rich chestnut colors shone in the sun, and the young colts ran with their dams and trampled down the flowers in a haze of pollen that hung in the sun like powdered gold, and they ran he and the horses out along the high mesas where the ground resounded under their running hooves, and they flowed and changed and ran, and their manes and tails blew off of them like spume, and there was nothing else at all in that high world, and they moved all of them in a resonance that was like a music among them, and they were none of them afraid, horse nor colt nor mare, and they ran in that resonance which is the world itself, and which cannot be spoken, but only praised. In the morning, two guards came and opened the door and handcuffed Rollins and led him away. John Grady stood and asked where they were taking him, but they didn't answer. Rollins didn't even look back. Okay, so then, if he, there's this, then you just read about a, another dream he's having. At the end of the section, he thinks of his father, and then there's the bit he, about he doesn't want to think about Alejandra. He wants to think about horses, which calls to mind this a dream about the horses running. And it makes me wonder if that dream has carried with him. But then at the end of that section, what's the very next paragraph say? So when he woke, he knew that men had died in that room. When the door, the door opened, opened next. next it was to admit a man in a blue suit carrying a leather bag. The man smiled at him and asked after his health. And I'm wondering if the doors opening is significant here. So he has the dream about the horses in the on 162, 161, and then in the morning, two guards come and open the door. And oh. here he has the dream where he, where he turns to the horses and he realizes that men have died in the room and the door opens again. Hmm. And so I'm wondering, I'm just hypothesizing. It, I'm not even hypothesizing, I'm wondering. Is it, do you think that this could, these could be like moments that bracket the action in between in terms of what happens to these guys? Because I mm-hmm. think after 165 was when even Rollins, when Blevins... Yeah. Blevins is still alive there. And so I'm wondering if these two dreams and these doors opening is meaningful in some way, because he, he can't be putting doors opening. Well, I mean, it's a pretty innocuous action ultimately. I, I don't know. You know what I'm saying? What do you think?
0: Yeah. And it's also a waking action, you know, oftentimes in a dream, what's right. the thing that's going to wake True. you up? Somebody comes to the room or something like that. So, yeah, but that's just a kind of maybe a practical... Device. When you were reading those two sections, David, I think that was really observant. Yeah. Like this, like a close long running horse dream. Yeah. It's a close reading in between <laughs> long running horse dream. We have this time where John Grady Cole doesn't have the liberty to dream of things that he loves. I and mean, he's fighting for his life. He and Rollins are absolutely right. fighting for their lives. And it's only kind of when he's out of danger, In recovery, is he allowed to return to those things? Hmm. At the end of the three days, he can dream again. Yeah.
2: I think there is something to it, though. The, the, The door opening as an action of wakefulness in a transition, right? A door opens, that's that's a transition point. Mm-hmm. And when the door opens in the first section that David read, um it's to take Rollins and torture him. That's at the beginning of their great suffering, right? Mm-hmm. And this is at yeah. the end of it. And they're bookended by dreams of horses. And I think that's extremely important. And so I think the door opening is kind of a passageway into a new phase of life into a new season for John Grady Cole. And the fact that each of those things is preceded, each transition is preceded by a dream of horses, I think is really important. I also think that the way one another accusation often leveled against Cormac McCarthy is that he that his like his prose is so purple sometimes like about the horses specifically, you know, like I stood next to the horse and the breath was coming out like news from another world. And you're like, calm down, Cormac. But like, it's (laughs) no, don't calm down, man. It's too good.
1: (laughs) Just write what you want to write because you're good at it.
2: But I think that if I could write sentences like
1: that, I also would write sentences like that.
2: (laughs) It's, it feels like a lot sometimes though, if you don't know what he's doing with the horses. And I think that's what is so becoming more and more clear to me in, in reading the book now for the second time, um, and that the horses really are this kind of a mediator between worlds, right? They're the mediator between hmm. Mexico and the Mer- the old world and the new world. They're the mediator between childhood and manhood. They're the mediators then also between transcendence and yeah, or this world and the, the next. Yes. So they are and they are constantly kind of mediating between worlds. And it makes a lot of sense that they would have a mystical appearance and a very different kind of descriptive voice than from McCarthy.
0: That's a great observation. They are. They're mediators. They're like angels, Mm -hmm. you know. It's the title of the book
1: is something that like people debate and like there's been writing about it. And then sometimes people just say, well, you know, it's just a kid who loves horses. Um, but how the the phrasing of it in particular, though, is interesting. All the pretty horses, um, not all the horses. There's a specific adjective there. All the pretty horses, not some of them, but all of them. Um, you know, this is, he could call it, you know, the other books are called the crossing or um, what's the third of a um, border trilogy. Uh, um, Cities of the Plain cities of the plain and, you know, you got blood murder. You could be called John, John Grady Cole. You know, there's all kinds of things that could be called. So how do you read the particular, you know, the phrase, all the pretty horses we, I guess we can talk about it later, but.
0: But I really like what Heidi just put forward.
2: I, I think that it's related to the lullaby. I, I, I think that it carries the weight of. The story, obviously, and the symbolism and in all the things we've talked about. And then I think it does pull in this really haunting lullaby and the lyrics Hushabye, don't you cry, go to sleep, my little baby. I used to sing this to my children when mm. I rock them. Um, when you wake, you shall have all the pretty little horses, right? There's the dream reference. Hushabye, don't you cry, go to sleep, my little baby. When you wake, you shall have all the pretty little horses. Blacks and bays, dapples and grays, all the pretty little horses. Hushabye, don't you cry, go to sleep, my little baby. Hushabye, don't you cry, go to sleep, my little baby. When you wake, you shall have all the pretty little horses. That is such, I mean, it's a beautiful, I'm not going to sing it because. You guys are, are, yeah, I'm good at other things, Um, but the, (laughs) that's the, it's such a, it's such a simple idea. Like when you wake, I will give you everything. Right. But none of us can Mm. have everything. And Mm. John Grady Cole doesn't get the pretty little horses and but he loves them and is always longing for them and dreaming of them and hoping that when he wakes, they'll be there. And there's just this sense of pathos and loss and beauty and, you know, this and, and the fall and all the things that Cormac McCarthy is, you know, contemplating through this like really, really haunting story. And I think it's significant that it's a lullaby and a childhood song, too. So I think the title carries the weight of the story of the symbolism and then of this little song.
1: Mm. That's good that's um that seems right. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> Again, too much to say or nothing to say, right?
1: <laughs> and of course he uh man he as a coming of age it goes back to what I was saying about it being a coming of age novel. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Um, that, that that this this dream here that at one sixty is roughly halfway through. It's a three hundred page novel. It's one sixty 160, one sixty one. It's like it's so it's roughly halfway. It's and it's it's this moment where he's dreaming of of something idenic. It's like in in um, what's the movie about the gladiator? You know when he has the oh, dreams yeah. yes. and they're like. Of he's another world, of the and there's Elysium like his,
2: fields, and he's touching the Elysium, the wheat. and his wife is
1: still yes. there in the grass. Yeah, it, this is what mm. that's what this dream reminds me of. Mm. Yes, um, and I then agree. he and then he wakes up, and you know I think it's interesting that you you sing the lullaby to help the child go to sleep, mm-hmm. but they're going to wake up at some point, and so here we have, here we have, him, dreaming it, and then he while he's asleep, and then he wakes up after it. So it's like an inverse of when a lullaby typically occurs in the sleeping cycle. And then later on he's going to have another dream that's going to wake him up. So he falls asleep, has the dream, wakes up to just the worst circumstances possible. And then later on, he has the dream, and you know, next thing you know, he wakes up, and things begin to get better. So you know, it, it's so it's so fascinating the way he does it. It's almost something like, homeric about it right like he's there's a descent into the underworld this is the underworld section of their odyssey um and In green and uh you know he the only way he gets out of it is by he because he has a he has a he has an angel someone someone guarding him you know I, you could look at it however you, right. and he, what, what, there's a figure that is that preserves them right uh, but they don't all come out um unscathed
2: well, and given the choice between going to the actual literal underworld in the epics or going through what John Grady Cole and Rollins went through, I'd absolutely go into the real underworld. <laughs> so Cormac McCarthy <laughs> picked a good, <laughs> hellish experience. Yeah,
0: I'll yeah. go with Virgil on a tour of the Inferno. Absolutely, Better yes. than getting your guts pulled out.
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, I just, an observation.
0: The second book in the trilogy is called The Crossing. I mentioned this in the first huh. episode. Um, a, a different set of characters entirely. And the main character in The Crossing is hunting a wolf at the beginning of the story. And he follows the wolf into Mexico for inexplicable reasons. And he finally traps the wolf and instead an of an amazing passage. It's incredible. It's amazing. The whole book is amazing. <laughs> and he chooses instead of destroying the wolf, which is marauding his family's cattle, he chooses instead to save the wolf. Also, unexplained by our novelist. He carries in he does everything to preserve this wolf's life. And it's it's so similar to me. To John Grady Cole's relationship with horses, it's this, the wolf is like a portal. It, it's like, like Heidi mentioned, like a transitional figure between this world and the next world. There's clearly something more, and this is not um, like an ecological outreach or anything like that. There's something absolutely majestical and transcendent in the pursuit of this wolf. And I just think that it's really remarkable that it's happening in both of these stories is kind of like um, a little bit of mirrors to each other. Do you think the crossing is as good as all the pretty horses? Boy, it's not a page turner. Like all the pretty horses, like once to me, it's definitely not once you get to the ranch In All the Pretty Horses, you're a goner. You're a goner, you know? Like, you're just like, oh my gosh, this book is just so good. The Crossing doesn't have that for me. It's more of a slow, episodic march, but it's incredible. It's just incredible.
2: Is it not about John Grady Cole?
0: It's not about John Grady Cole. It's... It's John Grady Cole. Why is it a trilogy? Um because John Grady Cole reappears in the third book and meets the the protagonist of the second book.
2: Uh,
0: Yeah. And it's it's all the same place, too. It's like as much as anything, it's about the place. They're crossing Mm -hmm. the Mexican border in all three. That's kind of, I guess, the thematic plot line. Uh when I was in college taking some creative
1: writing courses, we used that passage like our professor like would point to that passage for for the prose for the way mm. for the, the way it craft you know uh like unveiled themes and and like every possible thing there was to teach about fiction writing he kept turning to the wolf passage in the crossing that in a passage about a monkey in the beginning of a dennis johnson novel um <laughs> yeah have you ever read um which dennis johnson
0: novel the the Vietnam novel. Um, oh yeah, uh, I haven't read Tree that. of Smoke. Yeah,
1: it's good. Well, the beginning of the novel. Oh yeah, it is it really? No, I've heard bleak. it's really good. My frigging. Um, oh, it's like Rick this big. Crazy for it's, it. it. Yeah, it's 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 bleak. It's more bleak than this. It's a Vietnam novel with like all this crazy stuff that's happening. Um, and it begins with this soldier who is he 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 sees a monkey in a tree and something happens because of that like that's the beginning of the book um and it's it's uh it's amazing all right tim tim is gonna um either need to relocate or he's gonna run out of power tim you don't clarify in the in your message here on the chat whether you are going to run out of power and it's due to perhaps the sickness you've been enduring or if you what you (laughs) mean is that your computer is going to run out of power
0: (laughs) i'm gonna leave that i'm gonna leave that unclarified No, it's my computer. My computer's got the little red blinking battery light on.
1: Mm. Well, we should probably... We might as well start working our way towards wrapping this up anyway. We've all got things to do. Unless, Heidi, you've got... Do you have a good 20-minute monologue you want to give us? Mm.
2: I do not have a monologue, but I'm really sad to be ending this episode because I love it. I Uh. have loved talking about this whole book and this section in particular. So many thoughts.
1: Okay, let's do this then. Before we go... Tim may need to, you may need to really. Okay. Um, let's, let's look. Are there one or two passages in yeah, this let section Tim go
2: first, in case we that we him.
1: haven't talked about? You know, it could be a sentence, it could be a paragraph, a scene that you think we need to discuss as we get into the rest of the book. Uh, something that maybe sets us up for what we're going to read the rest of the way or, or dives into a theme that we've been talking about. And yeah, Tim, you can go first. And then that way, if you do expire,
0: uh, you, can, <laughs> you can expire into the, the void with, and still get something to say. I don't want to read the section on 177 that's about the knife fight with the Cuchillero in the cafeteria. I just want to point out, um, th- this is like a master at the absolute apex of his craft. And all of the sentences in this section are all declarative sentences that begin with the same subject over and over. Most often it's John Grady Cole. And every once in a while it's interspersed with um, a description of the Cuchiero. And it's he, action verb. So I'll just, just as a writing lesson, like for an action scene, pay close attention to page 199 and 200. The boy stubbed out the cigarette The Tamayero cried. John Grady realized. He opened the knife. The boy stood. John Grady held. The boy came. He passed. John Grady watched. The boy reached. John Grady saw. The tray coming edgewise. The tin cup slightly tilted. He flung. He rolled. He thought. He fell. He leapt. He pulled. He seemed. It's just very simple sentence construction. Repeated. Patterns of the sentence and the action is absolutely riveting. It's just boom, boom, boom. It's so adrenalized because there's no more adrenalized scene that you can paint. Is there a knife fight to the death? Mm. Flowery language is like really reserved here. This is a moment of pure adrenaline and man, it Mm. sets my heart pounding. No matter like if it's my first read or my eighth read. I love to the way this stands in stark contrast
1: to the dream sequences that I've been yes. reading. Yes, where like that page on one sixty five was literally one sentence. I read you fifteen yes, lines. right. One sentence, poetic poetry, right? Mm-hmm. And it's sumptuous there is a pace and to it, gorgeous. Right? It, yeah, yeah. There is a pace to it, and it's 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 like it's you know it's it's identic, right? It's it captures that, and then the starkness of this creates the action in it and this and the drama it's so good Love and that, that he is a master you're good of, at noticing stuff like that
0: the fact that he's a master of both those those dream scenes and of scenes like this and does he have to do anything else to prove what a master of dialogue he is i mean after this <laughs> section the dialogue is just oh my gosh it's so perfect the prison warden it's like i hear that guy in my head and it's Pitch perfect. Mm-hmm. You're hearing the prison warden in your head? I do. You, you, you come to me to and you say, you have a dream? Let me tell you something about dreams. <laughs> nice. <laughs> this is Antonio Banderas. Antonio Banderas,
1: <laughs> you <would be> <laughs> Antonio Banderas prison, prison warden. Um, Thank you for that, Tim. That was great. Heidi, what about you? Something you want to make sure we, we cover?
2: I... Wanted to support your theory about the underworld uh, on page two o three, and then I will close my comment with a question. So, Tim, if we, I want to hear your thoughts. If we don't lose you on this, um, on page two o three, when he's just wait, this is the first time he's waking up after his ordeal. Um, this is he looked at the floating rod of light. It was light from under a door. He listened. He held his breath and listened because the room was small and it seemed to be small and if the room was small he could hear them breathing in the dark if they were breathing but he heard nothing. He half wondered if he were not dead and in his despair he felt well up in him a surge of sorrow like a child beginning to cry but it brought with it such pain that he stopped it cold and began at once his new life and the living of it breath to breath. So I think this absolutely supports David's mm. statement that this is a death and rebirth resurrection. Yes. A resurrection scene that he's, what coming, page is that on? that's page two Oh three. He's coming back to life and he has, he has then a new life and that is such a beautiful writing, the repetition and he held his breath and listened. He listened. He could hear them breathing. And like, it's just, it, it really is stunning, stunning writing, which is always worth pointing out. Um, and the trend but i'm i'm wondering i want to hear from you guys what is his new life and i maybe we maybe this is a question we put off to the next section but my question is what was the old life and what is the new life yeah was it like he was kind of a child and adolescent and now he's a man is this like yeah, like a, consciousness yes or is it a, a life of like I have that phrase from from Loki in my head, burdened (laughs) with glorious purpose. Is he like, is this like a new phase of life? And in is it kind of is it the just the transition from child to man, or is there something more to this new life? Is my question.
0: That might be a fun one to to put off. I mean, I think our next section Mm -hmm. he's he's going back, right? Um maybe we could answer the question of like what he's died to but right. what he's living for i think is yet to be answered
2: yeah it kind of stopped me in my tracks that phrase that that he stopped at cold and began at once his new life mm. and the living of it breath to breath i was like mm. oh and I didn't catch it when I, see, there's so many good things about listening to a book and I loved listening to it, but there's something about reading that you can stop and think, you know, like, oh, what does that mean? Like, I kind of like passed me by when I listened to it. But mm. in reading, I thought that is super significant. He's dead to something and rising to something else. I'm not even sure I could say what I think he's dead to at this point, maybe. Yeah. But it seems a bit of yeah. a mystery to me still.
1: Well, and it seems meaningful that but- it brought with it such pain such pain. Right. That he stopped it cold and began at once his new life. So like that that new life was birthed out of out of a pain. Sorrow so And despair. That it he uses pain. the word yeah.
2: despair. That's new for JGC.
1: And you know, there's that bit. Well, there's on one eighty-four they're having a conversation, and then it says the horn's fixing to blow, we got a couple minutes, and then Rollins says I never knew there was such a place as this. Hmm. And John Grady says, "I guess it's probably every kind of place you can think of." And then Rollins nodded. "I wouldn't have thought of this one," he said. And then a couple pages later, there's the bit where it talks about um, the the. Uh, I'm, I'm like turning pages one at a time, trying to find it. But it talks about the uh, the prison was no more than a small walled village, and within it occurred a constant seethe of barter and exchange, and everything from radios and blankets down to matches and buttons and shoe nails. And within this bartering ran a constant struggle for status and position, underpinning all of it, like the fiscal standard in commercial societies lay a bedrock of depravity and violence, where in an egalitarian absolute, every man was judged by a single standard. And that was his readiness to kill. Oh my gosh. And so that's like the place they're living in is this it's hell. It's this hellscape. Yeah. yeah. And that the experience of that going through that surviving it then is out of that sorrow and despair which the only response to a place like that is sorrow and, sorrow despair. and despair it is the just it's response the to right that. response exactly and to endure that out of that sorrow and to, to experience that sorrow and despair and to come out the other side not a part of that is to be a new person and i think the fact that they come out of it and they survive it. And now we're going to discover what kind of people they are having been through that. Mm. Um, and I think that's why it's so important that he thinks of his father who endured some terrible things and came out of it and was never the same. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he, he knows that's, I'm only going that's the only father I'm ever going to know, you know, but what is that, what is having endured something similar going to mean for him? Um, and that's, I think, I mean, personally, I think that's where so the horses do come into play again. But, um, so I'll make that my final thought tagging on to to y'all's to yeah. your final thought there. I mean, honestly, it's not too much for me to say that part three of all the pretty horses is one of my favorite
0: sections of any book that has ever been written. Mm-hmm. It's so, like act three of Hamlet. In, yeah, not to cross I mean, reference again, but to cross reference again, like act three of Hamlet has right. everything. Everything is in act so call, three of Hamlet. Call a callback. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's a callback. We like, the showdown with Ophelia, the play within the play, mm-hmm. the threat of murder against Claudius, the to be or not to be speech. It's all in act three. And it's all in this section of All the Pretty Horses.
1: And in both of these cases, if you just want to read it for drama, like if you just want to read it for what happens, it's so Spellbinding. Good. Like it's a page turner. And on the stage, it's incredible. But then if you want to go deeper, it's like. Literature, so capital L, there. right?
0: Absolutely, right. So,
2: nice job, guys.
1: <laughs> All right, well, don't forget about the plays the thing. Don't forget about the daily poem, and please don't forget about Withy Wendell. We have had uh, th- three episodes of that of aired. The fourth one goes up this week. So, you know, we hope that you're checking that out with your kids or letting them listen to that. Um, and we've got some great stuff coming down the pipeline as well. So. Lots going on. After this, we are going to be doing two more episodes of Cormac McCarthy's All the Pretty Horses. And then we're going to do the Q&A. So get your questions ready for that as well. If you want to get in touch, you can do that on the Facebook group or you can email us. And the best way to get in touch is podcasts at goldberrybooks.com. So with that, before Tim disappears into the internet ethos, for Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh, I am David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, happy reading.